go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter number 3, as we begin a brand new study tonight on the book of Colossians that I am very much looking forward to. I think that as time goes along, we will see that it is an incredibly timely place to go uh, as far as how to live the Christian life in the day that we're living. And so we're going to take a lot of time, however much time is necessary to work our way through that book. I do not anticipate that it will take us as long as Romans did. Uh, It's a much shorter book, but uh, I do believe that it will be sequential. I think Colossians is where we're going here now. And then I think from there, uh, we could very possibly go into the book of Jude. And so hopefully if time allows and the Lord doesn't come back, but the Lord tarries, We'll work our way through some of these books. And I always have thought that it would be one of the most spectacular things in the world to be in the middle of teaching slash preaching on the Lord's return and then it be during the Lord's return. Uh, I can't imagine a more exciting thing. And so, uh, you know, time is of the essence, I feel like. And so we're going to work our way through this as quickly as we can. But I also don't want to rush the study because I think there's a lot here that we can glean. So uh, as we work our way through it, you can go ahead and look over at, uh, let me find my notes here. I had the wrong notes opened up. There we go. That makes all the difference in the world. All right. Revelation chapter number three, and we will jump in at verse number 14. I happen to believe that we are living in this final church age. And I'm going to explain to you tonight why I believe that. Uh, The world is falling apart. And where that comes from, how that's orchestrated, that's above my knowledge. Uh, I don't pretend to have all the answers. Uh, I do believe that if you've got piles of bricks stacked up on a street that have been carted in on pallets and orange flags marking where they're at, something's going on. Bigger than what we know. Um, And so I'm not here to say that every single thing that we see is necessarily a sign of the times. uh, Because some of these things can be orchestrated. Some of these things can be perpetrated. uh, And I believe that in a lot of cases they are. However, I also know that as we are watching these things unfold, we better be ready. Because I do believe Jesus is coming back very soon. Uh, These sorts of things are happening more frequently. Uh, These sorts of things are happening um, more severely as time goes along. Uh, Isn't it interesting that we go from one worldwide crisis to another? I mean, there's no break in the action. And so uh, with all of that said, I think there's an answer for us. And I think it's found right here in the Word of God. And if we'll just open our eyes to see it, it's quite stunning as to how accurate God's Word is for the day that we're living in now. And so that's where I want to find my... Uh, this, is, this is what I want to be my resource. This is what I want to be my guidebook. This is where I want to get my information from. And this is what I want to live by. And if we do that, if we allow this to be our source of information and our guidebook to get us through life, we can't go wrong there. We can't make a misstep. We can't accidentally promote something that isn't true or promote something that... Uh, We shouldn't. All of it, if it comes from the Word of God, if it's settled Scripture, it's safe. And that's where I want to stick with tonight. So look at Revelation chapter number 3, verse 14. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. 
To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my, father, or in my throne, even as also I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, tonight we need your help to open our hearts, to open our eyes, and to open our minds to your word. While I'm excited about teaching it and sharing it, Lord, I pray that my own emotions would never get in the way of your word. Lord, you've been so gracious to call us. and Lord, I'm so unworthy of that calling to have the privilege to share your word. Lord, I do not take it lightly, and I pray that tonight you would just help us and guide us and direct us, place in our mouths just the right words to say. There are times that I feel like I'm walking on a tight wire. Trying to make sure that we don't step off to the right hand or to the left. Tonight, Lord, I pray for your help in doing these things. And that you'll use this lesson to bless our hearts, to draw us closer to you, to challenge us, to stop shutting off our lives to you and to stop pushing you out of our lives. But Lord, to embrace you in these days. Lord, we'll praise you for how you work through this lesson and through this series that we're starting tonight. We pray in every way, shape, and form it would bring you honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we work our way through this, I want to prove to you why I believe we are living in this final church age. Uh, for those of you that are not aware, Revelation chapter number 2 and Revelation chapter number 3, they deal with seven different churches. These are seven churches that, in fact, existed during the time that the book of Revelation was written. Simultaneously, I personally believe that these seven churches represent seven different church ages. I have taught through those seven church ages here in our church, and it wasn't that long ago. All of that said, we find ourselves ultimately ending up at one final church age. It's what we call the church age of Laodicea. And the characterization of Laodicea here in these last eight verses or so of Revelation chapter number three gives us a clear indication as to why I believe personally that we are in this final church age. And so what I'd like to do tonight to start off is give you a little bit of proof why I believe that, what the consequences are of being in the final church ages, what the benefits are of being in the final church age, and my hope is, is that whenever we conclude tonight or next week, depending on how long this takes, to get through Revelation chapter number 3, verses 14 through 22, my hope is, is that next week or the week following, we will go from there into the book of Colossians. And I'll explain to you at the end of the lesson tonight why it makes sense to jump from the description of the final church age to the book of Colossians. I, I have actually taught that here as well. But it was one, I think it was one Sunday morning sermon that I preached out of Colossians. It was in passing. And I had a feeling then that it would be a lengthy series in the future at some point. And that's why I believe we're here now. So let's jump in back at verse number 14. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. And we're just going to work our way down through this one verse at a time. Again, the hope is to prove that we are living in the final church age, and what are the ramifications of that reality. What we're going to see first is the connotation of Laodicea, the connotation. Verse 14 says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I don't know if you've ever done a word study on these seven churches. Each of their names are significant. If you've not done a word study on these seven churches and their, just specifically their names, their locations, what they're known for in their area, all incredibly significant. Here, in verse number 14, the word Laodicea, it means people's rights. It means justice for the people. Literally, the word means that. Now, I want you to take a moment and I want you to soak that in. 
The name Laodicea means people's rights or justice for the people. I believe just in the connotation of the name Laodicea, there's a whole lot of things that we can pull from that, isn't there? Look at what's going on all around us. This age, this final church age, will be all about justice. The word justice will be the predominant word of the age. On top of that, I believe that it'll be all about people's rights. My right. My right to do this. My right to do that. My right to have this. My right to have that. It's my right. Thus, stealing away from our just God what is rightfully His. See, if we're not careful, we are American Christians. We're living in the American age. I am... I consider myself abundantly blessed to be an American. I praise God every day that I was born in this country. But with being an American comes a certain characterization. And living in the American age, the age of freedom, the age of liberty, the age of justice for all, living in that age comes with some challenges for the Christian. Namely... The thought that my life is mine to live. And because my life is mine to live, and because I have my rights, I can live my life however I want to live it. There's a problem with that mentality. For the Christian, we've been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. We are His. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. We are literally referred to in the Bible as his bondservants. He, pr- he paid the ultimate price for you and I to be his. Now with that said, when we take on this age of justice, this age of the people's rights, it's all about me and me getting what I deserve... I can get on board with some of that to a certain extent. I believe in hard work. I believe someone should be rewarded proportionately to the work that they do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's scriptural. But we must keep everything in its place. Who does justice belong to ultimately? It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment day is coming. And I've said this before. I'll say it again. This is all going to come out in the wash. And what I mean by that is when Judgment Day comes, we're going to know who did what. And they're going to be held accountable for what they did. When I see what's going on on the streets of our big towns all over our country, it does break my heart. It especially breaks my heart to think that because of all the mask wearing and because of the number of folks that are involved in it, that there's a very high likelihood that a a large number of these folks are going to get off Free of any charges. They're going to break all these laws and they're just going to be able to walk free. But here's the thing. God says, vengeance is mine, say the Lord, I will repay. The reason that's important for God's people to remember is so that we can maintain the spirit that we need to maintain in a situation like we're in right now as a country. You say, what spirit is that, Seth? Well, it's a spirit of love, a spirit of mercy, a spirit of grace, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of unity and community. That's the kind of spirit we have to maintain. And the only way we can maintain that is by keeping in God's care what is rightly God's to take care of, namely justice. And so I say all that to say I love being American. But I must not let some of the ideals that make us American creep into my Christianity to where it pushes God out of His rightful place. Say, preacher, you're you're treading on thin ice now. I, I understand that. But I don't think any one of us can argue from a scriptural, biblical standpoint that we don't belong to Jesus. That we are not His servants. That He doesn't own justice. That is His area of expertise. That is His responsibility. 
And I don't know about you, but personally, I feel like justice is much better in his care than any person on this earth. So I'm going to leave it right there with him. This will be an age that's all about justice. It'll all be about the people's rights. And as a result of that, no longer will, the, will trusting God be what's essential. It'll be all about trusting me. It steals away the need for faith in God, a trusting in, in His ability and His provision. It, it steals that away and it puts all of that responsibility on me. Now, what I believe is happening right now in the world that we're living in, I do believe literally it's another sign of the times. You say, well, and I've got some good Christian friends that'll say this. They'll say, yeah, but this person's the one that's orchestrating this. You know that, right? I do know that. And I happen to believe that that person is part of the times that we're living in. The Bible says that there will be a a boatload of deception. People that are deceived and people that will be doing the deceiving. That's one of the primary characteristics of the last days. And that's what's going on right now. There's a whole lot of folks that have been deceived and that are doing the deceiving. If we're not careful, we allow ourselves to get drawn into that. We've got to be careful of that. So with all of that said, the connotation, I believe, in the name Laodicea here is very significant. The fact that Laodicea means people's rights or justice for the people is incredibly significant. I believe it's an indicator that you and I are currently living in this last church age. Now... From there, I want you to notice the Christ of Laodicea. The Christ. It says, Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now what you find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is that every time Jesus is described... To that particular church, he is described as what that church needs the most in that time period. It's a pretty amazing study. Again, we could take the time, but it would take us months to work our way through these seven churches and the significance of each of these. And I'm going to try to do it very quickly tonight. The greatest need of that church age is how Jesus presents himself to each one of these churches. I'll give you an example. I'm going to show it to you. Look back at chapter number two and verse number one. Chapter number 2, verse number 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Totally different description of Jesus here. He's the one doing the talking. He's saying, I am the one who holds the seven stars and the seven golden candlesticks. I'm the one that holds them. Thus signifying his sovereignty to the first generation church which is what they at that time needed the most. Remember, the church was born in adversity. The church was born out of, out of a very tumultuous time. The church was born at a time where someone else had the sovereignty. Someone else had the authority. And Christ comes along and says, no, no, no. To the first century church, I am the sovereign. Now let's go on from there. Look at uh, chapter number 2 and verse number 8. And on the angel of the church in Smyrna write... These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Totally different description. What is the church age of Smyrna? It's the dark ages of the church. It's a period that the church was most persecuted. Never in history was the church more persecuted than in this time period that we call the church age of Smyrna. So what did this church need? They needed hope. And Christ comes along and says to the church age of Smyrna, I'm the one that was dead and now I'm alive. They can, they can burn you at the, at the torch they can, they can, or at the stake. They can take and kill your children and your wives. They can take everything you own. But remember, I'm the one that was dead, but now I'm alive. And to this church age that's living through this dark period, he supplies them with hope. Look at the next one. Look at uh, chapter number 2 and verse number 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. The Bible says there, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Totally different description. Why? 
This happened to be the church age where truth, quote unquote, was being held captive by certain groups, by certain religions. And while that truth was being held captive, Jesus comes along to the church and says, hold on a second. I'm the one that's got the sword with two edges. See how this works? On down through this, go. we're going to go, go ahead with each one of them. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. I love this stuff. Look at verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. What is Jesus offering himself as to the church of Thyatira? He's offering himself as justice. After the dark ages, after all the persecution, after the truth of God's word has been hijacked by these religious organizations, after all of that, I need this church age to know that I am still in control. And that justice will be served. That I've got this taken care of. Move on to the next one. Look at chapter number uh, 3 and verse number 1. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. So now we we go into this, we see a, a shift here. In my opinion, we see a shift from the church making its way onto the world scene. Now it's made onto the world scene, but all of a sudden it starts kind of stepping back a little bit. So instead of pushing forward like it has done for these first five church ages, in church age number six and especially church age number seven, there's almost a stepping back. And so what Jesus does is he comes along and he says, listen, I will be your sufficiency. I will be everything you need. You think that because everybody knows the gospel, everybody's got a Bible, everybody's, everybody's somewhat aware of the truth, that you don't need me anymore. And it's like he's come along and he's saying, hold on just a second. I'm the one that'll guide you. I'm the one that'll take care of you. And so that's what he presents himself here as. Look at chapter number 3 and verse number 7. Chapter number 3 and verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. The church age of Philadelphia is the revival age. When you read in your history books about the first great awakening and the second great awakening, I personally believe that that's the church age of Philadelphia. And I'd give you all the reasons why I believe that, but suffice to say, he basically tells Philadelphia, he says, I'm going to blow the doors wide open for you. There are going to be no limitations to you in this church age. No one's going to try to hamper what I'm doing. The Holy Spirit of God is going to move freely among the whole world. And you're going to see a revival like you've never seen before. And that's exactly what took place. So how does Jesus present himself to this church in this period? He presents himself as the shepherd or as the guide. As you're running full steam ahead as a church, you're going to need someone to make sure you're making the right turns at the right places. And that's how Jesus offers himself to the church of Philadelphia as their guide. Now, with that said, we find ourselves in the church age of Laodicea. Look at verse number 14. Now keep in mind what the church needed the most, and in most cases, what that church age was lacking the most, is what Jesus offered himself as. With that understanding, look at verse 14. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This ties hand in hand with what I preached out in the churchyard a couple weeks ago. It ties perfectly hand in hand with this thought process. The word Amen there, it means trustworthy. You can look it up. I challenge you to do so. I want you to. Look up the word amen there in your Strong's Concordance or whatever you've got there at home that'll take that Greek word and turn it into English and it literally means I'm the trustworthy one. When it says faithful and true witness there, that word faithful is different than what you might think. Guess what it means? It means trustworthy. He says I'm the trustworthy one. I'm a trustworthy witness. 
He says, and true witness. Again, it means trustworthy. Why is it that Jesus keeps repeating himself here? I think there's a good reason for it. It's because the thing that's most lacking in the final church age is truth. And there will be so much going around that is untrustworthy that folks won't even be able to get their feet back under them before the next deception comes along. And Jesus is reminding this final church age, if you're wanting to know what is trustworthy in this church age, you only need to look one place. Look to me. I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. If you're looking for truth, if you're looking for something you can stake your life on, if, you, if you're looking for something that you can, that you can promote and get, a, get behind and get a hold of, this is it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He goes on to say at the end of that, he says the beginning of the creation of God. The word beginning there does not mean he was the first one created. A lot, of, a lot of different denominations take that completely out of what it was intended to mean. It does not mean that the first thing God made was His Son. That's not what it means. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is infinite. What that word means, the word beginning, it means the leader, the commencement, the one who led the charge is the idea. Now with that in mind, it literally means I'm the one who led the entire work of creation. That's what that phrase means. The beginning of the creation of God. It means I'm the one who did all this. You want to know who specifically did all the work of creation? It was Jesus Christ Himself. What is the primary deception that's been circulated for the last hundred years, not only in our nation, but all over our world? Deception regarding creation. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we could have been deceived on a lot of different things. But Satan just decided to swing for the fences. I don't want to just deceive them about how God did certain things or where salvation comes from. I'm going to go all the way. I'm just going to try to suck God right out of every finger, every fiber of their being, everything they've ever believed. He went straight to the source. The very creation. He comes along and he Tackles that truth right out of our country. Jesus is coming to them and saying, what you're going to lack most in this final church age is truth. And I'm coming to you and letting you know that I am always trustworthy. Eternally. Jesus presents Himself as the eternal, trustworthy source of all that we'll ever need. That's a good thing to remember in this final church age, isn't it? Now, moving on from this, we looked at the connotation of Laodicea, that it's the age of people's rights, of justice for the people. We looked at the Christ of Laodicea, that he's presented as the eternally trustworthy one. And now I want us to look on to the carelessness of Laodicea. Look at verse 15. The carelessness of Laodicea. And again, as we, as we punch these out, I think that the checklist is pretty condemning that we are living in the final church age. Look at verse 15. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. They aren't cold. They aren't hot. There's no zeal. There's no passion. There's no fervor. There's no bright and shining light. It's almost like the church needs to be nudged with a stick just to make sure it's still breathing. It's a description of this final church age. When you look at Christianity as a whole, I'm not trying to be condemning of our own church. I'm, I'm not even necessarily thinking about our own church. I'm thinking about church in general. When you look at Christianity in general, 
Would you not agree that the zeal and the passion and the fervor and the brightness and the life that used to describe the church has been sucked dry? It's hardly even existent. You know, it's a sad day when some of the most exciting things that I can conjure up in my head, which to me is the salvation of a soul. I mean, I'm telling you right now, I have been in a lot of exciting places. I've experienced a lot of exciting things in my life. My dad, in the sales business that we are in, uh, as I was growing up in my growing up years, he was a, 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 a very successful man in that business. And as a result of that, we got to go all over the world. I've been to the Parthenon in, in Athens. I've been to, to the, the seas, the, the beautiful blue seas around the, the area of, of, uh, of uh, Greece and Turkey and, and on down through there. I've seen things that at 16-year-old boys should never ever have gotten a chance to see, but I got a chance to see it. And it all pales in comparison to that moment sitting back here in that office when I get to open up the Word of God and share with somebody how they can be eternally born again. Nothing compares to that. I say all that to say, in the day that we're living in, not even that will hardly stir up the church. Somebody gets born again. Brother Harlan, when you come back, and you tell me about somebody getting saved at one of your meetings, I think, honestly, my heart skips a beat. I mean, it just, you told me, it was, it's been months ago now, about an older man, an older gentleman, that got saved at one of your meetings. I haven't forgotten it. I was so excited about it, I thought about the rest of the day. I don't even know the guy. But the sad truth is, and I, I, I'd like to think it wasn't the case there, probably wasn't the case there, but I'm sure there have been many times where somebody gets born again at a service, and half the crowd just doesn't even really care. No big deal. Just chalk another one up and I've got to fill up the baptistry again. Again, I'm not saying that about here. I'm saying about Christianity in general. Around here, I, I called Brother Mark about filling up the baptistry. He said, Preacher, I'll do it right now if you want me to. But I'm talking about Christianity in general. It's like we're dead and swollen on the side of the road. You see these big, massive movements thinking that it's alive because of how big it is. You've heard me use the description before that when you hit a deer with a truck and it falls over dead on the side of the road, you're going to drive by four days later and it's going to be a lot bigger than it was. It doesn't mean it's a whole lot more alive. It means it's a whole lot more full of death. Now the maggots inside, they're having a field day. Best time of their life. But it's still dead. See, that is a great description of the church age of Laodicea. Rich and increased with goods. They have needed nothing. Not even God. Not even Jesus. We don't need Him. His name is too confrontational, too exclusive. We don't need that here. And their carelessness is nauseating to God. They're not a sweet-smelling savor here. He's, it, it, it's to be the same thing as you taking a big sip of coffee and it's not ice cold and it's not real hot. It's somewhere in the middle. What do you want to do with that sip of coffee? You want to just spit it out of your mouth. Unless you just really like coffee and you just can't stand the thought. Or unless you paid way too much for your coffee. That might be another reason to go ahead and swallow it down. Okay? But if you're like me, if it is ice cold or steaming hot, I'm not interested. And that's what God's saying here. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you've lost your fervor. You've lost your zeal. You've lost your passion. You've lost your excitement. And because you're just kind of moving through the Christian life, I don't even know if I want you here. He's prepared to spew us out of His mouth. You want to know why I think God is justified in saying this? Because He knows what He paid to save the church. He knows what it cost to bring about redemption. 
and a taste of that redemption and then not, not have anything change? For there to be no difference? You see, there's a parable Jesus tells, and you can mark this reference down, Luke chapter number 13, verses 6 through 9. And what Jesus is getting at is that if your faith doesn't produce, then it's dead and worthless. And what we've got in our society today is we've got a countless number of quote-unquote Christians who have made a quote-unquote profession of faith, but what you see is a whole bunch of lukewarm. Folks aren't passionate anymore. They're not on fire anymore. And it doesn't matter how how articulate the message. It doesn't matter how spirit-filled the message. It doesn't matter how many times you preach it. It's like you just can't wake up something that's dead. He gives the parable of the fig tree in Luke chapter number 13. And he goes up to the fig tree and he goes up to it with some excitement. He's hungry and he's looking forward to picking some fruit off. Although the disciples knew it wasn't the right time of year for that. But Jesus is using this as a teachable moment for his disciples. He walks up and it's filled with leaves. It looks productive. From a distance. Most folks would look at that fig tree and think, man, that thing's got to be loaded with figs. Look at the leaves all over that thing. And as Jesus approaches the fig tree, he starts peeling back all the leaves and looking into the inside of the fig tree. And when he gets to the inside, he realizes it's completely fruitless. He condemns the fig tree, and as they walk away, they look over their shoulder, and it's withering dead. And they're all astonished by it. And Jesus shares the parable. He says, we're a lot like that fig tree. Filled with leaves, look like everything's okay, but when you start peeling back the mask... When you start peeling back all the greenery, when you start looking into the heart, into the Christian life, there's really nothing there. The carelessness. We also see the concern of Laodicea in verse number 17. It says, Because thou sayest, verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. What was their concern? They were awfully careless about the things of God. That's why he refers to them as lukewarm. But what were they concerned about? If if, if they were in a place where Christ had taken a back seat so much so that he's ready to spew them out of his mouth, what was their life characterized by? What were they concerned with? What did they care about? They definitely cared about something. Verse 17 tells us, Because thou sayest, I am rich. You know, the first thing they cared about, the first thing they made sure of was that their bank accounts were full. Had to make sure that was taken care of. You know what else they were concerned about? (laughs) This is so, it just amazes me how accurate this is. It says we are rich and increased with goods. You know, the second thing they were concerned about, all they cared about was making sure that the supply shelves were stocked. That's literally the phrase. Just making sure that everything's stocked up. It actually embarrasses me to think, I'm going to, I keep telling you all this personal stuff, and you all know way more about me than I know about you. And so one of these times, we're just going to have to flip the tables here and let you all come up here and tell me personal stories about you. When COVID 19 first came on, my dad called me. He said, Son, you've got to get to the store. You got to grab some stuff. I wish he'd have told me I needed to grab toilet paper, but he never said that. <laughs> he told me, he said, you need, to, you need to get, you know, you need to, and I, so first thing I did, literally, right as everything was getting ready to shut down, I told Emily and the boys, I said, y'all stay here. I'm going to go get, get what we got to have. And I went and I got, I mean, I think we'll have green beans for at least two years. <laughs> I mean, I have got a stockpile of green beans. Lowest calorie thing I could have bought. I bought green beans. I bought peanut butter. By the bucket load. Peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter. I bought Spam. I don't know. Just seemed like the right thing to do. Everybody was hoarding the Spam aisle. I'm walking through and literally the whole store is pretty much empty except for the Spam aisle. And I'm like, man, if they need it, I, I obviously need it too. And there's like a whole box left. So I grabbed the whole box. I didn't push nobody out of the way. 
I know what you were thinking. Nobody was there. I, just, I did it very calmly. And I came home with a counterfull stockpile. Now, yeah, it, it, it was one cabinet worth of goods. Okay? But that's what I'm getting at. What embarrasses me, I walked home that day thinking I had really gotten the job done. And if push came to shove, we maybe could live a couple months on that. But that's about it. Even if it prolongs the inevitable for two years. What's that? Say, preacher, what are you getting at? All I'm saying is in the church age of Laodicea, they're going to only be concerned about keeping the bank account full, keeping the supply shelf stock, and thirdly, they're going to be concerned about their own needs being met. Look at what it says there in verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now, there's one critical word in this verse that if we're not careful, we'll just read right over it. It's the word sayest. You see that word? It says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That doesn't mean it's actually their reality. It's just what they're going to say. What is their reality? This is what I want to close with tonight. The character of Laodicea In verse 17, they know not. Look at what it says there. Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I know you're saying your bank account's full. I know you're saying that you've got plenty of supplies. I know that you're saying that you don't need anything. But you're deceiving yourself if you think all that's true. The reality of the situation is that you are oblivious for one thing. He says, thou knowest not. They're completely oblivious. What's the word I'm looking for? To how fragile they really are. And if we're not careful, we forget that. Again, we're Americans. And so we just think, I just think that because I've got that 9mm in that safe box next to my bed that's got 19 rounds if you cock one into it. That's a lot of rounds in one handgun. If I miss 19 times in a row, they deserve to take what I got. I'm just being honest with you. Something's wrong. I'm telling you. <laughs> the, point, the point I make we can think we've got it all taken care of that we're untouchable but our lives are incredibly fragile are they not? they're oblivious to how fragile they are in reality their lives are wretched in God's eyes he looks at them still plagued with sin still covered with sin never having placed their faith and trust in Christ and all he sees is sin. They're miserable in their own hearts. Remember, the word that's important is the word sayest. You say that you're rich. You say that you're increased with goods. You say that you have need of nothing. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I know your heart. I know how miserable you really are. You can put on a face around everybody else but me. I know what you feel like when you lay your head down on the pillow at the end of the night. I know the fear that you're struggling with as the world's being shredded by the wicked one. I know the trials and the struggles that you face. I know you're miserable. They're oblivious, they're wretched, they're miserable, they're poor. Yeah, but they got so much money in their bank account. Yeah, but they're still poor. I don't know how big the bank account will be the day that I pass away. Probably won't be that much. 
The one thing I know is that the moment I pass from this life to the next, my bank account will be transferred not into heaven, but into somebody else's name. All that money I thought I had stocked to piled in my bank account will be worthless the day that I leave this life and go to the next. But the treasures that I laid up in heaven, the eternal ones where moth cannot corrupt and where thieves cannot break in and steal, they're poor of those kind of riches. They're blind. Oh, I can see just fine. I don't know what... I mean, I have to wear glasses, but it's not that big of a deal. I'm not talking about physical blindness. They are spiritually blind. They can't even see the enemy as he's doing the deceiving and the manipulating, as he's coming along and he's destroying. They can't even see it. Completely oblivious, blind to it. And then lastly, they're naked. Naked of Christ's righteousness. Never truly been robed in the righteousness of Christ. By the way, I'm not talking about the world. This is to the church. The church is going to be filled with people who say they are rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing. And in reality, in the eyes of God, They are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What an accurate description of the day that we're living in. Say, preacher, is there, I mean, it's a pretty hopeless message you just taught us. Well, I knew it was going to take me two weeks to get it all out. So you're going to have to wait till next week to get to the good stuff. But there is good stuff coming. I want to read you one verse. Look at verse 21. Actually, look at verse 20. We'll save verse 21 and 22 for next week. But look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's sad that he's out there. We're talking about the church here. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You say, preacher, what's the answer? I can feel the fervor being removed from my life. I can feel the fire going out. I understand what you're saying. Now, I'm telling you, honestly, my heart, I can feel it. I don't want you to ever think that the, the passion and the fervor with which I preach here at our church is manufactured. It's not. God helping me, His Holy Spirit empowering me, I'll be able to always give what is needed in this house of God. But in my private time, there are times that I am tired and I am worn out and I don't want to put up with anything else. It always seems like that's when I get the weirdest calls, by the way. And boy, I got a doozy today. Man, I got a I can't wait to tell you about it, Kurt. I got a, a doozy of a call today. I have those times. I feel it. I feel the fire and the passion being drawn out of me. I feel the struggle that's being described here. I feel it in my own life personally. What's the answer? It's not a collective experience of God's presence. In fact, Jesus says here in this church age, for most churches, I'm going to be on the outside knocking at the church door hoping somebody will hear me and let me in. He's saying, you may not experience my presence and you may not experience a move of my Holy Spirit on a massive scale, but if you'll open the door and you'll let me in, oh, I'll come into you and I will sup with you and you'll sup with me. The promise, and I love this, the promise isn't to the great movements and to the great masses. The promise here is to the individual. He's saying, the rest of the folks that you're around, they may never get it. But if you'll open the door and let me back into your life, I will move in this church age like no other church age has ever experienced. But I'm going to do it on an individual basis. I believe that with all my heart. I believe 
that you can be closer to God now than ever before. In spite of all the distractions, all the trials, all the struggles that we're facing, all the the bad news that we're seeing, in spite of all of that, I believe with all my heart that if you'll open the door and stop shutting God out of your life, stop tuning Him out, stop casting Him aside, if you'll take up the kind of Christian walk that He wants you to have, I believe you'll experience an intimacy with Christ like you've never experienced before, especially now especially in these last days. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We pray that it's helpful to your people. I know I've gone a little long tonight. But Lord, our heart is full. As I study the church age of Laodicea, Lord, I am filled with excitement. Knowing that I truly believe with all my heart we are living in these days. And to think that I have the privilege to live and to preach and to teach in these days, days that men of old only dreamed of, days that men of old could only prophesy and look at a distance at, to be able to preach it and teach it in the middle of it is a supreme privilege, and I thank you for it. But Lord, help us to break it apart rightly. Help us to give it in accordance with your will. And Lord, help us to grow Help us to grow. Help us to open our hearts and let you in. Help us, Lord, to stop getting distracted and to stop pushing you out. Lord, help us to open the door of our lives and to experience a close relationship with you like we've never had before. And we'll praise you for what you do. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.